I heard that comment again. Oh, it's been in the last couple of weeks. You know, that, that one that we've all heard, perhaps even said. You know, when I get to heaven someday, the Lord and I are going to have a talk about whatever it is. <laughs> we sang that song, I, I see the king of glory and the whole earth shakes. I'm thinking, no, I don't think so. You know, at, at what point are you going to have that conversation with God, you know? Is that before or after your insides have been turned out in the presence of the King of Glory, you know? I think the, the reason that we're going to be in heaven forever is because it's going to take half of forever just to get off our faces and appreciate where we are. My goodness. I am glad to be back here this Sunday. Had we had another snow day, I'm not sure what I was going to do. Because I don't know who I am on a Sunday morning if I'm not coming to preach a sermon to the Applewood family. You think I'm kidding. I'm going to say a little more about that towards the end of my sermon today in the form of a confession, which I really don't want you to know, but I'm going to share it anyway. But this is the Lenten season. As Phil said, second Sunday in Lent. Marvelous season on the church calendar, preparation time historically for God's people. Uh, a bit more somber in nature, and yet Sundays, uh, not technically a part of the 40 days of Lent, because Sundays always need to be a celebration of the resurrection. But transport yourself back a week and a half, two weeks ago, just shortly before Lent began. Uh, what might be the question that you were asked more often than anything else? Do you recall? by just people who were conscious of the fact that it was the Lent season. There you go. What are you giving up? What are you giving up? Well, that's always a curiosity for me. And so I found this guy who analyzes tweets. And leading up to Ash Wednesday, which was a week and a half ago, the number one give up was going to be hot Cheetos. Yeah. So you glad to hear that? Hot Cheetos. This, uh, this gentleman figured that by the time Lent began on Ash Wednesday, he would have analyzed around 200,000 tweets. And so Hot Cheetos was the top. And then, of course, there was chocolate and there was school. And how do you give up school? You know? Some people were actually going to give up Twitter. That was on the list. So they tweeted and then gave it up. <laughs> Alcohol, swearing, soda, sweets, fast food, coffee, meat. Some were going to give up Lent itself. I'm tempted to think that's stupid. But the truth is, even though I'm more inclined to think along the lines of Romans 12 and Paul's exhortation that God's people present themselves as living sacrifices in view of his mercy versus give up our hot Cheetos, I guess my thought is, is that if giving up something, no matter how significant it might seem to me, causes people to focus on Jesus, makes them somehow more aware of him and his sacrifice, his suffering for us in this season of Lent as we push our way towards Holy Week, then I say, that could be a good thing. And so go for it. Because that is... What Lent is, is all about, 40-day period minus the Sundays prior to Easter, what I love to call Resurrection Sunday. 
uh, April 5th this year, coming quickly, that God's people through the ages have used it for preparation. Resurrection Sunday, of course, is a high point of our year together. And what can help that happen for us is taking time to focus upon the life of Jesus as he prepared to become a sacrifice for sinful and broken people. And, and most of us, we, we know that. But have you ever thought about Jesus and his daily sacrifices? His, every, his everyday life and the challenges that must have been a part of that. We, we think of Jesus' death as the sacrifice, and, and rightly so, that is appropriate. And I don't want to take away from that. But yet, I'm suspicious that as he began his ministry, and probably even before he began his ministry in sort of an official capacity, it it seems to me that every day had sacrifices for him. He came from heaven, right? The eternal Son of God wrapped himself in flesh, as Philip Yancey writes, and moved into the neighborhood. The neighborhood is not a nice place. Broken place. Filled with broken people. Hurting people. People who have fallen desperately far from the purpose for which they were created by God to live in a love relationship with Him. And that happened essentially because we thought we knew better. You know, that is the default mode that is in each one of our hearts is to live life according to my plan and my agenda. And so my thought is is that living as the God-man, fully divine, fully human for Jesus, as he walked the streets and the paths and and the hills, it it must have been filled with sacrifice. And that that idea has has grabbed me and... And it's kind of what has caused this series to take shape just for for these Sundays in Lent. A journey with Jesus. And I want to look at at some specific events in his life that I think more than likely presented great challenges to him. Where he had to give up something in his humanity. It It was a sacrifice. And I think it's important for us to consider this because... In our last series, 1 John chapters 3 and 4, we we know that the apostle made it very clear that those who claim to know God will live like Jesus. They will be like Jesus in the world. And so it seems to me that, that the sacrifices that Jesus made on a daily basis leading up to the sacrifice become a model for us. Not again to minimize his sacrifice on the cross. But what I hope is that it will make his humanity more real to us. Because that's where we live in these days. We live in our humanity. Sometimes we're stuck and sometimes we get past it. But we live as human beings, fallen and broken people, joyfully redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus and yet living as fallen people living in a fallen world. So our text this morning is from from Matthew 4. It'll be familiar, I think, probably to most of us. Uh, The story is recounted in all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
But we're going to use Matthew's account because he gives more detail about this particular event. And I think on this Communion Sunday, it is just a, a marvelous text to remind us of Jesus and, and his, his life commitment to honoring his Heavenly Father. So let's, let's stand together as we read from Matthew 4. Here we go together. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, People do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. My brothers and sisters, this is God's word for us. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. A couple of years ago, frontpagemagazine.com had an article and they had surveyed a thousand U.S. adults to find out what they think of the devil. 50% of Americans, again, according to their, their survey, believe in the, 57% of, of, of Americans believe in the existence of the devil. Now, the same question was asked of millennials, those born from 82 to 2000. They range in age from 15 to about 33. 40% of the younger population said that Satan is not a real being, just a symbol of evil. I think it's interesting. Perceptions of Satan. Who is Satan? Matthew obviously believed that the devil was more than just a symbol of evil. He's a being with a personality personality that engages Jesus in conversation. And, and here's one of the things I find most intriguing about this story is, is the reason why this conversation came about. Heather, can we have our next slide? We read these words. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. What on earth is going on? Why would the Spirit do this? Why was it important for Jesus to be tempted? Ask your neighbor what they think. We'll just take a minute. What do you think? 30 seconds. All right. Time's up. What do you think? What did your neighbor think? What, what's, what's this about? What's going on here? Anybody have any thoughts? Okay. Okay, so Jesus as an example, good. What else? 
Okay, absolutely. Okay, did you hear that? If Jesus was be tempted as we are, fully human, then he had to go through the temptation. Now, here's the setting, and you may know this if you're familiar with Matthew's gospel. That word, then, calls us to believe that this is happening pretty soon after the events of the previous chapter. The original text wasn't chapters, but for us it's chapters. Which is Matthew's record of Jesus' baptism. He was baptized by John the Baptist. And as he came up from the water, Matthew writes that heaven was opened and the Spirit of God descended upon him like a dove and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And the very next words, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. There was something about, I think, Jesus being, if I can say it this way, approved or announced publicly by his Father to those who were there in human flesh that got the powers of darkness going. Because they'd never had this opportunity before. I think, hope this isn't heresy. I couldn't find anybody who thought that it was. <laughs> but I didn't ask anybody <laughs> you know, too closely. I think it was a test of his human heart. He'd never had one of those before. In his pre-existent state, he was, as far as we know, not wrapped in humanity. That was reserved for those on earth, human beings. God cannot sin. Jesus the human was was not immune to the things in this world that call to our hearts. I think Jesus in his divinity is immune. Jesus in his humanity, maybe not so much. That's what sin does. Satan knew how to ply the humanity of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews gives us a couple of amazing insights into Jesus and his humanity. And Lee made reference to this. He wrote to God's people who were scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were were being encouraged by the writer of the letter to not give up. Don't, Don't pull away from your faith. Life is hard. It's difficult, but... But hang on, he says this, for we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So, let us find, then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may find or receive mercy find, receive grace to help us in our time of need. Tested in every way as we were. And then he writes in Hebrews 5, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death and he was heard because of his reverent submission. What I think is fascinating is the writer of Hebrews doesn't say that his prayer was answered if he was praying to be spared from death. 
But his prayers were heard because of his reverent submission, we assume, to the submission of his father and the will of his father. Son though he was, the writer of Hebrews says, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Yay. And I think in our wrestling to make sense of the divine and the human Jesus in this this package, the incarnation as we know it, we can unwittingly minimize his humanity. I think I've done that for years. Because in my mind, deity always trumps humanity. And yet, in the interaction of the divine and the human in Jesus, I don't think that that's true. These texts teach us that that the temptations that Jesus faced were as real to him as they are to us. I don't think, and we do a terrible disservice to our understanding of Jesus' life in human flesh, which is important for us to embrace. We do a terrible disservice if we think that he somehow coasted through his life effortlessly avoiding sin. I don't think so. Because he was as human as we are. He faced it. He did not give in. The writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. How does that have meaning to us if he did not wrestle with the temptation as we do? I think temptation called to his human heart in the same way that it calls to ours to to do something that would make the daily living of life less difficult. That's what temptations do. They tempt us to somehow turn to something else that we think is going to make life better or easier. Jesus sacrificed He resisted those things because that was not the path that was laid out for him by the Father. Nor is it the path that is laid out for the rest of his kids, including you and me. We've made following Jesus easy in this country. Say the word, pray a prayer, and you're in. Nothing has to change. Well, try to avoid the really bad stuff. Okay? But just live your life as you choose and wait till heaven. That's absurd, not to mention unbiblical. I think this story reminds us how absurd that that really is. The Son of God showed up wrapped in human flesh, and the enemy decided to test his human heart in the same way that he had tested every human heart through the ages. And the Spirit of God led Jesus into that test because the human Jesus needed to be tested. What would his heart choose? Would he live for God's glory or his own? And the enemy was more than happy to bring the challenges because that is what he specializes in. He has been convincing people for ages, since the beginning of the human race, that living for God is really not about a surrendered heart. But it is. In the story, Jesus faces three categories of temptations that are common, I think, to the human experience. Things that call to our hearts. They sort of get at the question of who, who are you living for? They tempted his heart. They tempt our hearts. And the important question is, are, are we aware of it? Are we even aware of it? 
Are we willing to surrender our hearts as Jesus did? Are we willing to to have conversations with our Father as we know Jesus did a ton of? Because I believe that, frankly, we can count on the Spirit taking us to places where we will be tempted. Do we assess the choices that lay before us as opportunities to demonstrate, as Jesus did, reliance upon the Spirit's power? We have, as children of God, the Spirit's power. The presence of God's Spirit lives in us. And we have the ability to live out a heart that demonstrates surrender to the Father's will, just as Jesus did for His Father's glory. Is God's care and provision enough, or do we need more? Do we want more? The enemy and the powers of darkness do not want us to sacrifice in any way. Live life fully for ourselves, because sacrifice means that we're willing to follow the Spirit And we believe that there is more to living for the glory of God than just saying the words. So in preparation for communion this morning, let me just make a couple of observations about the first two temptations. We're going to come back to the third one next week and and wrap that uh, with with another story. Um, And then just a, a word about... Application, as I always do, you know I'm going to leave this laying with you. And, and what are you going to do with it? What are the implications for your own life? Because what it looks like for me, and as right as I think that should be for all of you, that's just not the way it is. Okay? What it looks like for me is not what it looks like for you. The results or the outcomes of our wrestling with this, they're not going to be the same for all of us. That's okay. God will, God will lead us. What I, what I hope you hear in this is that we need to engage our Heavenly Father in conversation through the power of the Spirit who resides in us and ask questions like, Father, what do you want in this situation? What is going to bring you glory in this situation, in this relationship, in these circumstances that I find myself in? So, I'm going to paint some broad strokes and understand that I think Jesus wrestled with these same things. And because he faced the temptations in the power of the Spirit, he was victorious. And the same Spirit, by the way, is, is in us, empowers us because of Christ's ultimate victory to be victorious in these things. Okay, quickly, first temptation. The first temptation that Jesus faced had to do with physical desires. Turn the stones into bread. Shoot, I would say that after 40 days of fasting, the desire had become a real need. But the larger category here, I think, is physical desires and creature comforts. I am tempted to think to myself, come on, you've been fasting for 40 days. He was starving. He needed food. Would it have been wrong for him to use his power to take care of his need? Well, evidently, it would have been because he didn't. Jesus knew that it was part of the temptation that the Spirit had led him into in order to gauge 
the surrender of his human heart, his human will to his father. Who was he going to trust? In our culture, most of us do not face this kind of physical need in terms of food, and clothing, shelter, those sorts of things. That's why I think the larger category of desire and creature comfort is, is necessary for us to consider. I remember years ago when, when Daniel was still with us, we were talking about life growing up in Sierra Leone and the prayer that Jesus taught his followers and the line that we pray, give us today our daily bread. Daniel says to me, you know when I was a boy, I prayed that and I meant it because he didn't know if he would have food to eat that day. We, most of us, don't face that. We, we live in a land of abundance, a land of plenty. What a blessing that is. And in this country, we often speak of, because of the wealth, we speak of an entitlement mentality that, that people can have towards physical things, things that that meet physical needs. That attitude of feeling that that I deserve this or I deserve that. I got to tell you, I don't think God's people are immune to that. God has given us the power to turn stones into bread. It's called money and we go shopping with it. So you combine the power to purchase with the mentality of, I deserve this. And we quickly cross the line from necessity to excess. Just because we have the power to make something happen for our increased comfort and pleasure does not mean that we should. How did Jesus know that he shouldn't do it in that situation? I believe he'd had conversations with his father. Do we have conversations with our father? Now don't hear me saying that you can never do anything nice for yourself. What I'm saying is that, that I'm not confident that we, that I, put the shoe on if it fits, that I talk with my father about whether I should do this or do that? How do I use the power that God has given me, the purchasing power, the the money that He has given me to support my life? Do I have conversations with Him about that? Is part of our thinking, why do I want this? Will it bring my Father glory? Is there something else that, that He would rather I do? than this, maybe I should ask him. had a conversation with a friend a couple of weeks ago about a, a beautiful piece of property that's for sale in their neighborhood. piece of property that would give a beautiful view to a house built on that property. This friend said, not going to do it. I could, but I don't think that it's a wise kingdom decision. Hallelujah! 
I just wanted to shout it out. It was such a great reminder to me because I don't think that way often enough. God provides for our needs and we need to be people who ask the questions, what does the Father want me to do with what He has given me? Jesus taught His followers to be careful of greed. A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. Most Americans don't know that. Our stuff does not define us, nor does it bring us the security that we may think that it does. Stuff is stuff. God is our provider. I think we need to wrestle with this. What do we do with the provisions that God has given us? Do we stockpile? Do we build bigger, buy better, buy fancier? Just asking the questions, you wrestle with it. Second temptation was that of personal reputation. I hate this one. What better way for the Messiah, God's anointed one, to announce his presence than go to the temple in Jerusalem, which was the highest point was 600 and some feet high, and jump! And just kind of float down to earth and land on his feet unscathed. That would draw a crowd. That would impress people. That would be an amazing start to his ministry. And I think that that's what Satan was driving at. And who would have blamed Jesus? If he had the ability to do that, why not? That would have been so worthy for his cause of drawing people to himself. They would have been convinced from the get-go. Jesus knew that this was not the way that his father would have him be identified. The way of Jesus was ultimately the way of the cross. And the life that he lived on his way to the cross was one of humility and daily self-sacrifice for the sake of others. Jesus knew that his father had a different plan and he embraced it. It's precisely why Jesus says to those who want to be his followers that they have to deny themselves and take up their own cross. To live as a follower of Jesus means that, that we are people who face pride and a desire for good reputation. We face it, we look it squarely in the face, and we say, I am a child of the king. I do not need that according to the standards of the world. And I will live the life that the king has called me to, and I do not care what others think of me. This is not an excuse to be a jerk. This is a rationale to be like Jesus in our lives. Do you want others to think well of you? I do. The question is, to what extent are we willing to go in order to have them think well of us? Are we identified as people who live according to the values of the kingdom of God? Because those values, things like the first will be last, love your enemies, forgive others 700 plus times, give to those who can't give back, those kinds of values really aren't appreciated in our world very much. Those are the values of the kingdom of God and those are the values that Jesus lived his life by. Loved by some, hated by many. That's the way it goes. See, we live in a world where power and personal reputation are, are sought at all costs, not by the people of God. The people of God don't live that way. Power is given away. 
Control is not necessary. Personal reputation is not based upon the world's value of things. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. No, that is not what the son of God was called to do. His father had another life for him. Father has that same life for his sons and his daughters, you and me. It's a life of humility and poverty of spirit. It is a life that does not seek the applause or the acclaim of others because their hearts are passionate about their Father being glorified in and through them. So let me offer you a confession this morning. The Lord brought this to mind and I said, Really, Lord, you want me to share this? And he said, Yes, I do. I went through the discovery retreat this weekend and I've, I've shared this with a couple of friends. And a part of, well, I, the, the whole emphasis was just the pursuit of, of intimacy in our relationship with God. And one of the, the pieces of the discovery retreat was to identify those things that, that are blocks, those things that are barriers to our really becoming intimate with, with our Father who loves us. And, and it was so clear to me, based on some of the work that they had had us do prior to the, to the retreat as well, that I live with a tremendous sense of fear. Now, this probably sounds a little kooky because it's not really like a fear of people. I don't, I don't fear any of you. The, the fear that I'm talking about has its origin in my mind and it has to do with how a good pastor lives his life. Things that good pastors do. And so I realized that, that I live a lot of my life in fear of not being a good pastor versus being who God has called me to be in your presence as his beloved child. You see, good pastors, pastors with reputations, they write books. I haven't written one. Good pastors, they are, they're asked to, to speak and to teach at conferences. I don't get asked those things. Good pastors, they probably don't spend 14 years in a congregation and not see it really grow numerically that much. I didn't want to tell you this stuff but it's stuff that Satan puts into my life and causes me to wrestle with. You know, guy, if you were a good pastor, yada, yada, yada. That's baloney. That is just a lie from the pit. And today, I'm here to tell you, I feel strongly about that. Tomorrow's a new day. And the week after, and the week after that. But I want you to know that. Because I want you to pray for me. And I want to pray for you in these wrestlings. That we will become people who are seeking after the heart of our Father. People who are willing to to block out the stuff that the world says is important about who we are. Who we should be, who we shouldn't be. How we ought to use our resources, how we don't. We need to take our cues from the Father. We need to be a people who 
who recognize the gift of his spirit living in us, giving us the opportunity to commune with the heart of the one who loves us as much as he does. So brothers and sisters, we are coming to the communion table this morning, and I hope above all else that when you come, you will have those words, amazing grace, playing in your head. Amazing grace. Nothing that we do earns us a place at this table. Nothing that we could do earns us a place at this table. We are not called to this table because we are good-looking, popular, of the right political party, because we have X number of dollars, because we have great reputations in the work world. None of that stuff matters in the kingdom of God. What matters is whether or not you have put your faith and your trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your salvation. And I pray that that's true of each and every one of you this morning. You know, if, if any of you are here this morning and you don't know, gosh, has there ever been a point in my life where I made a commitment to Jesus? would love to talk to you about that. Don't leave. Turn to someone and say, how do I do that? Come to me. We'll talk. But in the meantime, we come to the table and we celebrate as God's people. Father, we are grateful for your amazing grace and ask that in these moments as we come to the table that your spirit would sensitize us in new ways to the enormous, amazing gift that your son is for us. As we continue to move through this season of Lent, may this gathering of the table, around the table, and the taking of these familiar elements, may it just give us energy and propel us to live with passion for your glory, as Jesus did. We ask in his name.